Okay, so it is May. We've been walking through since January this, this semester on biblical themes where we've seen over and over and over again, the Bible is one story, one story, not random 66 books that's been collected just to make the Christian religious book, but rather the Bible is one story that is ultimately all about God's son, about Jesus. And seeing that reality is actually what's best for us. It puts us in our right place in creation, that creation, God didn't say, let there be light for our glory and to make much of us, but rather God said, let there be light for his glory and to make much of his son. And we're actually happier. We're far more joyful. We're far more free when we see that we were made, not for ourselves, but for him. And so as we've looked at all these themes, we've looked at themes like kingdom and covenant and food and beauty and all these different things, we've just seen that same reality over and over and over again, that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and that's actually how we live rightly in this world. And so today we're going to look at another one of these themes, and it's actually something that we do every single Sunday. It's God's people gathering before God to worship him. So gathering to worship God is our theme today. And and similar to a couple weeks ago, we looked at the community of God. And I said, this is something that's very normal to us. And I think it's one of those areas where the, the true meaning of what we practice has been massively lost in our day and age. So if I were to just ask you, why do you come to church Why do you come into this building every Sunday? I would imagine uh, a lot of answers, at least my uh, typical answer for the majority of my life would be something like to hear a sermon. We gather to hear the preaching. We gather to hear someone preach to us. And the music is great, but the music in our minds, although we might not phrase it this way, is primarily to stir us up get our emotions ready to hear the sermon, right? So it's very, we're here for one thing, that is to hear the preached word. And and my question to you is, why do you need to gather for that? You can do both of those things through the magic of the internet. You can Spotify the music and you can either stream or podcast the sermon. In fact, many people do. There's a massive move uh, away from actually physically gathering in the church and just doing things Online, There's a whole new uh, campus model called virtual church where you don't gather. You just sign in online because that's honestly how we view Sunday, primarily to just hear a preacher and then leave. And I want to show us today that that typical understanding uh, is radically different than what we see with this theme when it comes to how the Bible would describe this theme to us. That typical understanding actually radically misses the beauty of what we do every Sunday and the purpose behind what we do every Sunday. So I have a very lofty goal this morning. It's, it's quite simply that as a result of seeing this theme in the scriptures, you would never view Sunday the same way again. You would never walk into these doors with this sort of, I'm just here to hear Jared preach or Tim preach or Lee or Carl preach a good sermon and then hear some good music and then leave. But rather we would see what God is actually doing in gathering his people before him to worship him. And in seeing it rightly, seeing it biblically, there would be this longing in your heart that you would want to come to church, you would want to gather together with the saints before your God and worship him because you've seen its kind of biblical richness. And then even more than that, that your week, Sunday would be seen in its right place of your week as the fuel for your week. That Sunday would fill you up for Monday. So that's my goal is to just 
in looking at this in the scriptures, we see the biblical richness. We see God's design behind it. And as a result, have our minds renewed and Sundays forever shifted for us. And with Sundays shifted, our weeks shifted as well. So before we actually jump into gathering to worship, it's probably helpful to define what is worship. What is worship? We often think of worship as just singing, uh, although that's certainly a part of it. That is not it uh, exclusively. Rather, worship is, is simply your whole lives before God. Look at Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So worship, you can think of it this way. It's just simply giving God the praise and the honor he is due. Ligon Duncan, who's the professor of Reformed Theological Seminary, says this. Worship is declaring with our lives and with our lips that God is more important than anything else in the world to us. And he gives the example of when a martyr dies for the faith, when a martyr is before the executioner and they say, recant, deny Jesus, and they say no, and they have their heads taken off, that is an act of worship. They're declaring he is more glorious, more worthy than my own life. So take my life, but I will not turn away from him. That's an act of Worship. It's declaring with our lips, yes, there's that singing element, there's the praising God with your lips, but also with how you live, with your lives, that he is more important to you than anything else, primarily for two reasons. Number one, because God is the holy creator. We don't exist without him creating us. Unless God scoops up dirt and molds it and breathes life into it, Adam doesn't come into being. Unless God forms you in your mother's womb, you don't come into being. And... Colossians would tell us, unless God actively sustains you, unless Jesus is constantly keeping you in being, if you will, you would quickly fade out. Unless he keeps you, unless he creates you, you wouldn't exist. Therefore, you and everything in all of creation owe him everything. You don't own anything, right? If he owns you and keeps you in being, everything you have is his. Therefore, he is owed all of your life and all of your praise because he's your creator. But potentially another area that we often miss is that God is worthy of our worship because of his infinite beauty. His splendor almost demands, or not almost demands, his splendor does demand our praise and our worship. One of, our, one of my favorite scenes in the uh, comedy sitcom uh, mockumentary Parks and Recreation is uh, Andy and April go drive to the Grand Canyon. I can't remember why, but they get there. It's kind of the end of an episode. And Andy says, oh, it's, it's so much more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. And April, who her whole bit is like she's cynical all the time and she finds the negative literally and everything. She's very dark. She says, I know it. I'm trying to find a way to be annoyed by it, but I'm coming up empty. And so it's just this picture of they're before something so glorious that even the most cynical person in the world must stand in awe, can't mock it because it is so beautiful. That is God times infinity. His beauty, his splendor, his wonder demands that the only thing that exits your mouth is praise of his wonder. So to say it another way, he must be worshiped because of who he is. The last verse in the Psalms, this glorious prayer book, this praise book of the Bible. It ends with this final verse, Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
What a way to end a book that is meant to show how we are to relate to God. And by the way, this is why idolatry is so unbelievably offensive and so wicked in the scriptures because it is false worship. It's giving to creation what only the creator is due. Romans 1 says this uh, in in explaining what what is the ultimate rebellion act that humanity has created. Paul says this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among, uh, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you see that you and I are made, you and I are put on this earth to worship our creator who isn't just our creator, therefore we owe him everything. He is so wonderful and so glorious, and so beautiful, and so gracious, and so kind that he demands our praise. So we do that with our whole lives, but there's explicit gathering for worship. We see that all throughout the scriptures, what we're going to look at today, we worship him with our whole lives, but there's also, we take time, God's people takes time to come together as his people stand before him for worship of his holy Name. So we're going to look at today from the garden to the new heavens and the new earth, this gathering of God's people before him to worship him in a particular way. In fact, in the way that God is going to design himself and prescribe himself. Here's how you are to come before me and worship me. So let's start where we always start in the garden. You could say the garden is an almost constant gathering before the Lord to worship him. Adam and Eve walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. They're meant to spread the garden out for his glory. They're dwelling in his presence all the time. Heaven and earth are in the same place. Where God dwells, heaven, and where man dwells, earth, are the same place in the garden. Uh, Jonathan Gibson uh, who wrote this book here on the bottom. I brought props for you today. I happen to own all the books that I recommended. He wrote this book, uh, professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he actually charts out a kind of worship service in the garden, elements of a worship service that you see in the garden. So you see God call Adam to worship him on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 actually talks about how Eden is this great mountain. Mountains throughout the Bibles are these places where the, the earth juts up into heaven. And so it's this place where you're meant to worship God. You see Mount Sinai, we'll look later at Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where the temple is built. You see even in their idolatry, what are they constantly, the good kings are tearing down the high places. People have gone to the mountains and built altars to false gods because there's this idea that mountains is where uh, heaven and earth get close together. And so we see Ezekiel describes Eden, the garden, as this mountain. So God calls Adam to worship him. God speaks, gives him a law, kind of speaks scripture to him. Don't eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Rather, eat of the tree of life and live Be fruitful, multiply, live amongst this garden, don't eat this tree, eat this tree, and live. So you see God calls, God speaks. Adam responds, Adam and Eve are meant to respond in faith. I trust you, God, that this tree will lead to my death. This tree of life will lead to my life. They're meant to respond in faith 
in obedience. And then you see a sort of kind of idea of a fellowship meal, a fellowship meal where presumably they are eating in the garden with God. They're hearing his word and they're obeying his word. And as a result, they're, they're living and dining with God. So there's this communion with God that we see in the garden. So Jonathan Gibson says this, Adam was commanded to fast from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in order that he might feast at another tree and thus enjoy consummate union and communion with God, everlasting life. So their kind of worship service, the order of service, or the liturgy, if you will, is the kind of historic word the church has used, just means worship, uh, is you see a call, a word given, a response, and then a meal. And notice, there's this corporate element to it. It's not good for man to be alone. Adam and Eve are meant to kind of participate in this worship service with the living God. So you kind of have uh, this, this idea of gathering before God to worship him, and even these elements that we'll see throughout the Bible. And then all that breaks down in Genesis 3 when primarily Adam and Eve don't continue to worship God. They don't respond to his word in faith and obedience. Rather, they listen to and by implication worship the creature, the serpent. The first act of idolatry we see when Adam and Eve trust the created thing, the serpent over their creator and they fall and they are kicked out of God's presence. They can no longer gather before him to worship him. They're kicked out of the garden and with them, all of us. And now there's this terrifying, terrible reality between us and God's presence and that is sin. And as God removes them from the garden, removes them from the ability to gather before him and worship, he puts cherubim, angels with a flaming sword going every which way to show if you try to enter back into God's presence, you will die. Because you are now sinful, because you've rebelled against him, you try to go back in any which way you think you can, you will die. You can no longer gather before him to worship him. But then again, we see this Genesis 3.15, we've seen this every week, that there's this promise to one day, someone's going to come and he's going to crush idolatry. He's going to crush the created thing that was worshipped and by implication restore true worship. Bobby Jameson, author, pastor in Washington, D.C., says this, ever since God's people were banished from his presence after the fall in Genesis 3, God has been at work gathering them back to Himself. So even as they're being removed from his presence, there's a promise that he will one day be regathered in his presence. So we see this promise, as we've seen throughout all, all the weeks, is going to be realized through the nation of Israel, through Abraham's family. And so we see this idea of Israel being gathered before God. Notice, as you're reading Exodus, while Israel is enslaved in Egypt, God says, I'm going to bring you out so that you can what? Worship me so that I can gather you together to worship me. That is the end of the means of the Exodus. God's getting them out, not just so they're not slaves anymore, not just so they're not getting beaten anymore, not just so that their lives aren't miserable anymore, but so they can worship their God, so that God can gather them to worship them. We see that in Exodus 3. So now here's the problem. As God is gathering his people to worship him, what's the new reality? didn't exist for Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. It did in Genesis 3, and now it exists for Israel as well. That reality is sin. So, as we've said, you can't just rock up to God and say, I'm here to worship you and not expect to be consumed. 
not expect that flaming sword to come down on you. So notice this. God has to, one, initiate your gathering before him. Sinners gathering before me. As I say, I give the invitation and I tell you how to do it. I've got to give you the rules. If you just show up and think you can do whatever you want, you're going to be consumed, which we actually see that. So just to make a little bit more sense as you're reading through the scriptures, when you see people offering wrong sacrifices and then they're instantly consumed, they're killed. You see that with Eli's sons and the Samuels. You see that in Leviticus and Numbers. This is what's happening here. People are rocking up to God saying, I'll worship you however I want, forgetting that they're sinners and forgetting that God is holy. And God in his infinite grace says, I want my people before me. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I want to gather you so that you might worship me and I might bless you. But I give the invitation and I set the rules. I set the rules. And so two ways, two things that we see in Israel that God establishes that sinners might come before him and not be consumed is sacrifice. Blood must be shed for that sin in order for you to come into my presence and a mediator. So God establishes all throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood. People to sacrifice on behalf of the people so that they can come before him with their sins atoned for. This bull was shed in your place. This, the blood of this bull was shed in your place. And these priests are now mediators before you. So we see sacrifice makes gathered worship possible. Hold on to that thought. Sacrifice and mediators make gathered worship possible. It is impossible otherwise. You will be consumed otherwise if we try and come into God's presence as sinners haphazardly. So we see this big gathering. Jonathan Gibson breaks this down a lot of his, uh, in his book. He, this gathering for kind of a Worship service, if you will, at Mount Sinai. So if you trace, I have it there for you, Exodus 19. What is Israel doing? They sit at the bottom of Mount Sinai for a year before they move off, right, in Numbers. You get through the first 10 chapters of Numbers, some trumpets will blow, and they'll start to actually march towards the promised land. But before that, they're before the living God. God has gathered them to show them how they might worship him. He's gathering them to worship. Jonathan Gibson again says this. As Israel gathers at Mount Sinai after being redeemed and rescued out of slavery in Egypt, a liturgy, a worship service, an order of service is formed that becomes the basic pattern for Israel's worship in the future. Okay, so God's just not saying, pause here, I'm going to give you some random laws and then we'll go to the land of milk and honey. He's showing them, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people, here's how you will come before me and worship me. So you see them gathering there at Mount Sinai. You see God calling them by his word. You see God cleansing them through his sacrifice. So sins being paid for so that they might not be consumed. You see a mediator, prophets and priests there to being appointed so that they might mediate between God and man. You see this divine communication. You see God's law being given, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenants. People are consecrated to come before him. They promise obedience when Moses says, here's the law of the Lord, Israel responds and says, this we will do. Right? This faith and obedience. You see more sacrifices, more communication, a cleansing, and then mediated access to God's presence. And then finally, like in the garden, you see a fellowship meal. A fellowship meal. So you see this kind of order of service, if you will, at Mount Sinai when the tabernacle is being established. And we see it again several years later. So they go take the promised land. David becomes king. Saul is a bad king. David becomes the good king. And David has this great conviction. 
I've got this great palace, and Lord, you have this tent, this tabernacle. I want to build you a house. I want to build you a great temple. And God says, yes, but your son Solomon is actually going to do it. So on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, another mountain, the temple is built, a glorious temple of Solomon. Solomon. I've been watching Lord of Things too much. Solomon. Solomon. Um, and right at the end, we get a kind of service, a consecration service as the, the temple is being kind of made active. And so we see something similar. God gathering his people at a mountain, at Mount Zion, cleansing them through sacrifice. There's priests there to mediate their worship. They praise him with song and music. We see the glory of God fills the temple. God gives his word. There's a divine communication again through Solomon. There's a prayer of intercession, fire and glory from heaven fill the temple. There's more praise. There's cleansing and consecration. Again, we will do this. We'll follow the Lord. We'll obey his statutes. And then again, there's a meal. There's a feast. And then there's a blessing over them. Solomon blesses them and dismisses them. So you see, as the the houses of worship are being established, both at Sinai and the tabernacle and then in Mount Zion and the temple, worship services, an order of worship, if you will, is being formed. How are you to come before God and God giving? Here's how we're going to do it. Okay, so there's this kind of just the, the general structure. Notice it's got the very bare structure that existed with Adam, God calling, God giving his word, we saying, we're going to obey you, yes, and then sharing a meal together. Except now, because of the reality of sin, there's these other measurements given. Sacrifice for your sin. A mediator to mediate the presence between you and God. Gibson again says this, because of sin, new essential elements are incorporated into the worship of God's redeemed people within the covenant of grace. Gathering, cleansing, mediated access, divine communication, and consecration, okay? So Israel does this when, when they're established, but then also they're meant to do it kind of different times throughout the year, different festivals, Passover, the Feast of the First Fruits. We see a lot of that in Leviticus of how you're supposed to come before God, when you're supposed to come before God, all those sorts of things. And then all throughout their history, again, a tragic, tragic history, we see this, this beautiful thing set up by the Lord, designed by the Lord, that his people who are sinful might actually dwell with him And then Israel rebels like their father, Adam, and they rebel in a very particular way through false worship, through idolatry. Even in the bottom of Mount Sinai, as the law is being written, as God has just redeemed them, they worship not their creator, but a created creature, the golden calf. We see them worship Baal. We see them worship Asherah. They've got their own liturgies that require unbelievably wicked things like child sacrifice, And Israel chooses to worship the gods of the other nation, the so-called gods that aren't even gods. The prophets will mock them and say, you know, you take a piece of wood and you cut it in half and use half of it to warm your house and half of it you make into an idol and you worship it. How ridiculous is that when the living God is before you? So this false worship is actually what leads to their judgment and their exile. By the way, when they come back after the 70 years and they rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, the problem of idolatry is not solved. You still see these hearts that are running to different things. And so there's this great longing to get us back to the garden, in particular to get us back to where we can worship the God of the garden and where our our, our wicked hearts aren't constantly leading us astray. And that's exactly what the prophets promise to God's people. Two things. One, there will come a day where people come before the Lord and the eternal Zion, the eternal mountain. And it won't just be Israel, it will be 
all the nations. Look at Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Again, this, this imagery of worship. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us, he may declare his word to us, teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. We might respond by saying, yes, Lord, in this, this we will do. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord for Jerusalem. What's Isaiah promising? There will come a day where perfect worship and perfect obedience to the word of God will be reestablished. And it won't just be Israel, it will be all nations will be gathered as God's people. And we also see other promises that a new heart will be given that will make that worship possible. I'm not just going to have my law external to them. I'm actually going to write my law on their hearts now in this coming age. I'm going to take away that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that's possible of obedience. It will come. Malachi there in Malachi 3 promises one day someone's going to come declaring the way of the Lord. They're going to be preparing for someone who's going to come and eventually crush the head of the serpent and bring true worship. And that's what we see when we finally get to Matthew. When we get to our New Testament, we see God sends his son, the one that has eternally been in his presence, that has never left the Father's side, comes down. And what does John say? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. In his very self, he is the presence of God with man. And he goes and he succeeds everywhere that man has failed. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, even where David fails, Jesus succeeds in his worship of God. Look at this quote by Gibson. Where Adam, Israel, and David all failed, God's final son succeeded. Where the first Adam remained silent and bowed before the serpent, the last Adam rebuked the serpent and refused to bow. Jesus takes, or the devil takes Jesus up to the top of the temple and says, Look at all these kingdoms, I'll give them to you. What's the one requirement? Do what Adam did, bow to me. And Jesus says, No. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Where Israel and David and his sons, the kings that came after David, promised they would worship God with their, all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but didn't. Jesus, as the true Israel and David's greater son, worshiped wholeheartedly. Zeal of your house will consume me. Jesus was no idolater. He was no hypocrite. God finally had a son who worshiped him alone. He's the true temple. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's the perfect place where God's presence dwells with man. And in John 4, we see the earth-shattering announcement from Jesus when it comes to this theme, when he's on uh, by the well with the Samaritan woman and she asks him a question about where are we supposed to worship? What mountain are we supposed to go to? She wants to know. There's all these fights about where we're supposed to worship. I want to do it the right way. Where do we, where, where do we go? And look at what Jesus says to her. Our fathers, this is the woman speaking, Samaritan woman, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where, where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here, is here with him, with his arrival, with the word being made flesh and dwelling among us, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see that. Jesus showing up and saying, I'm about to show you. I'm about to inaugurate true worship of God. And notice what he says there. The Father's looking. The Father's seeking those who are going to worship him in the right way, and it will be through me. And what we ultimately see is he will go to the cross to make all this possible. He's going to go to the cross and take the punishment for all of our idolatry, all of our false worship. Every time we've exchanged the glory of our wonderful creator for ridiculous, pathetic creatures that we bow before day after day after day, poisoning ourselves with this ridiculous idolatry, he takes the punishment for. He becomes the once and for all ultimate sacrifice. No longer do we need the blood of bulls and goats. We have the perfect sacrifice that makes it possible for us to come before our God without being consumed. I don't know why these crosses are here. I imagine because this is a church and we do stuff like this. It was before my time. But if you're ever before God, say on a Sunday service, and feeling the unbelievable weight of your guilt and of your sin and having this thought of, I can't come before God. I want you to look at that cross and remember this. I can, as Hebrews would say, boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Blood has been spilt for my sin. The sacrificial system set up in Leviticus has been fulfilled. Perfectly, once and for all. The blood of the perfect lamb has been forever painted on your doorpost to where you can always approach the Father in Christ. Knowing my sins have been paid for, and even more than that, I've been adopted into your family. That God doesn't just tolerate you. You're not Esther going and saying, I wonder if the king's going to show me favor. I don't know. I hope so. You're saying, the God of the universe is my father and loves me with a love that is incomprehensible. I boldly approach the throne. That's what Hebrews is trying to get across to his audience. Look at Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the veil is torn. When Jesus says, it is finished, what does every gospel author take time to say? The veil that divided your presence from God's presence that had stitched into it, by the way, an angel with a fiery sword has been torn in two because Payment for sin has been made. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, let us enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord, the psalmist says, he who has clean hands and he who has a pure heart. You read that in the Old Testament and you think, that's not me. No one does good, no, not one. Our best works are filthy rags, but you come to God through his son. Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord, he who has clean hands and a pure heart? If I'm united to the one who has the perfectly clean hands and the perfectly pure heart, so do I. You see that. Why do we stick in Jesus' name, I pray, at the end of every prayer? Because we're coming before the Father through his Son. As those united to him, we do not dare come before him outside of Christ as sinners. We would be consumed. But united to the perfect one, knowing he's taken all of our sin, and we as a result have been clothed in all of his righteousness, we can boldly go before the Father and say, my Father, knowing he says, my son, my daughter, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased because he sees you as spotless as his son. You see how Jesus is so key to gathering before God. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect mediator so that we can not just timidly come before God thinking, I think this is okay. I heard this was okay. We can boldly come before God. And so that's what we see throughout the church. So the people of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of the living God gather together to worship him. We do this every Sunday. We do this on the Lord's day. So while, yes, we talked about at the beginning, our whole lives are meant to be worship to God. Again, as we've seen, there's also explicit times to gather before God for corporate worship. There's Matthew 6, go before the Lord in your closet. Don't let anybody see. And then there's the Lord's day. There's, there's the gathering where we come before God that we're not supposed to neglect, as the Hebrews uh, author just said. So we, as God's chosen people, come before him through his son and by his spirit. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, and this is where we might get into things that might seem a little strange to us just because perhaps we haven't thought about them uh, enough, is what do we do when we gather? Do we just do random God stuff, right, that we think, we can do this? I think the Bible would say, don't do that. Look at the, the consequences of not letting God send the invitation and not letting God set the rules. And so we see throughout Scripture uh, biblical patterns. We've looked at some of them, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, even the garden of what it looks like to approach God and things like that. Uh, one of the things the church has wrestled with throughout uh, really its history, and really this is one of the main things the Reformation is all about, is as the Reformers are trying to recover the gospel, they're not just recovering uh, theology. They're not just recovering the solas, if you will, you know, if you will. By scripture alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, all the sola scriptura. They're not just recovering the doctrines. One of the main things they're recovering, that's actually what this big, thick, green book is all about, is they're recovering how we are to worship, how we are to do Sunday. One of the things John Calvin said when he talked about being saved by the gospel is, I was saved from idolatry. And what he meant was, I was saved from the idolatrous uh, Catholic mass, where there'd be, you know, the worship of saints all throughout and things like that. And I was saved uh, into the worship of the gospel. And so when the reformers sat down and thought, how are we going to do Sunday? When we gather on the Lord's day, how are we going to structure our worship? One of the things they went to is, how, does, how would the scriptures inform us? And they wanted not just the sermons, yes, the sermons, but not just the sermons, the whole service to be shaped 
by the gospel. The whole service from beginning to end to be kind of a story of the gospel. And so there's variety in this because the, the Bible never says, do this, and then gives you the nice bullet points like I've done uh, for you. And so the church has, has thought through in wisdom, how do, how do we put these things together? The Bible will give us commands right, to pray and preach the word and encourage one another and sing to the Lord and all these different things. And the church has thought, how do we put these together in a way that it declares the gospel? And so the reformers were very concerned about how do we recover her in the same way we're recovering the biblical gospel that has been lost. We want to recover biblical worship that has been lost. So they would not say Sunday is just for the sermon. They would say the sermon's kind of at the center, but they would say Sunday is the whole service that is meant to proclaim the gospel. The whole service, as Brian Chappell, another book I have here, is he was a structure tells a story. How we structure our worship gathering tells a story. So what I've tried to do is difficult uh, because uh, there's... There's some variety. Everyone would have kind of the same general convictions, but how they put it together, there'd be some variety. I've tried to give us here uh, just kind of a general outline of what does it look like to come before God on the Lord's Day with a, a whole service that proclaims the gospel? What would the reformers have really been aimed at as they're saying, let's, let's recover this idea, this order of service. They would use the word liturgy. That typically freaks us out because it sounds a little Catholic-y. It just means worship. Uh, so we say, when I say order of service, that's a secret way of saying liturgy to not freak you out, okay? But so let's just, this is, what I have listed here is what a Lord's Day service might look like where the whole, where we're not just, we're here to hear Jared. We're here to hear the sermon and leave, but rather the whole service is meant to tell a story with the sermon at the center, okay? So let's walk through this. First thing you would hear is, is a call to worship. God calls us to worship him through his words. So we'll see Josh do this today. Uh, with uh, He'll give announcements and then he'll give us a call to worship. So think about this. We don't start the service with prayer. We don't start the service yelling at God, please hear us, please pay attention because we're about to do something. God calls us. God has had his eyes fixed on you since your alarm clock went off. He is gathering his people into this building, the covenant members of Parkway who've covenanted to one another. He's gathering us together to praise him. And he is the one through his word. That's why Joshua will read a scripture instead of praying because God is the one who calls us. We see that with Adam. We see that with Israel. We see that with the church. So that's a little quick thing. We started doing that in the fall. Maybe you didn't even notice it. Maybe just now as I'm saying Josh is going to do it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that thing they've been doing at the end of announce it. But think about something that's so quick. We read a paragraph of Scripture, frames the next two hours. Are we here screaming at a God who may be indifferent? Why else would we need to scream at him? Pay attention to us. Please hear our songs. Or is God very fixed on you and calling you? Pay attention to me. I'm the one that has never taken his eyes off you. You see how something that small can radically reframe, I don't know, how you view God and certainly how you'll view the songs you're about to sing, certainly how you'll hear the sermon that's going to be preached, where our role as a preacher is just to preach what God is saying so that it sounds blasphemous. We want you to hear from God, not from us. So it's really important that we preach you the Bible and not just Jared's thoughts those are not worth anything or much. Unless it's about messy, then they're worth a lot, right? So God is calling us to worship. That's the first thing that we will see. He initiates. Again, we've seen this. God is the one initiating worship. Come before me, sing to me, and let me 
rain down my infinite grace on you. God calls us to worship. There would be a response, a response with a song, a song typically of adoration. So, so trace this flow as we go through. So God calls us to worship. The first thing we're aware of is his majesty and his wonder. And so we sing very specifically about his character. Praise you, God, that you are wonderful, that you're creator, almost this kind of Psalm 8 sort of way. What is man that you're mindful of him? You are so wonderful. You hung the stars in the sky. You're aware of how great God is. And then something you would see in, in, in the Reformation is you would see after a song, recognizing how great God is, you'd see something like a corporate confession. We actually did this at our Good Friday service where coming into the presence of the holy God, Isaiah 6, what are you immediately aware of? Your sinfulness. Isaiah, the most holy man in the nation, says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. What do you see when Peter realizes who Jesus is, when he throws the nets on the other side of the boat, and a bunch of fish come out, and they've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything? What do they see? Peter says, depart from me. There's this instant awareness as you enter into God's holy presence of your own sinfulness, and so the right reaction of that is to confess, right, your sin, and then after a confession of sin, you might hear uh, what's typically called the assurance of pardon. So someone would come up and read a scripture. You've just all confessed your sins. What's God's response to that? I'll give you an example. Romans 8. Here's, here's God speaking to you through his word. You've just confessed your sins. Here's God speaking to you through his word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So you've just confessed and you're not left hanging. I hope the potentially angry God really accepts our confession. You instantly hear the gospel. In Christ, again, look at the cross. Your sins are atoned for. Your sins are forgiven. So how do we respond to forgiven sins. Again, you see the flow here. You come before God, you see his majesty, you confess your sins, you hear of forgiveness in Christ. How do we respond with another song, this time a song of thanksgiving? How else could you respond when you've just heard that your infinite sins have been forgiven by God sending his own son? So notice what we've done here already. You'll see a lot of the summary in, in some like evangelism books. What's the gospel? God, man, Christ response. We've just done that seen God, we've seen who we are, sinners, we've confessed, we've heard of the forgiveness that's available for us in Christ, and so we respond in praise. Sometimes you'll see in, in the Reformation what's often called a pastoral prayer, it's probably really foreign to us, where a pastor would say, okay, the, the congregation, the people of the Parkway Church is gathered, I'm going to pray on our behalf for a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to use the word we and not the word I, and so there's a 10-minute, you know, little section just to pray. Uh, there's churches, there's a church I preached at uh, last summer uh, that did this. They just write out different churches to pray for. They pray for the government. They pray for different issues happening in the world. Very specific petitions where the pastors say, Father, we're coming before you as a people to raise these petitions to you, raise these prayers uh, to you. And then you would have the sermon. We've gathered before you, God. We've confessed our sins. We've heard of the wonderful grace that is in Christ. We've praised you with thanksgiving. We've lifted our petitions to you. And now we're going to hear you speak through your word. We're going to hear you speak to us through your word. And this isn't, okay, good. Jared's talking now. Now I get to be a, I just get to kind of be a spectator. You're actively receiving. The Lord is speaking to us as a people. We're being formed 
by his word. After the sermon, you might see a song of praise. How would we respond to the preached word of God? Similar to Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they hear the Ten Commandments and they say, this we will do, we'll obey you. And so that's what we do. We, we respond with our songs of praise. Praise you, Jesus, for how wonderful you are. Praise you that you give me the strength by your power to walk in good works, Ephesians 2.10. Not by my strength. I only have filthy rags to offer, but by your spirit that you put in me, I can actually obey you. You've written your law in my heart. You've taken out my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh. You would then see uh, something like either the Lord's Supper. Again, we see that ending with a meal, very common throughout the scriptures. And so we do that every Sunday. We end with the Lord's Supper. You'd also see sometimes baptism, kind of seeing the gospel. If you want to think about the ordinances that way, we get to see through the visible ordinances, the realities of the gospel. And then at the end, you would either get a benediction or a commission. So our service is ended. We've just gone before God. We've, had our, we've seen our sins are forgiven. We've heard from him. We've responded in praise. We've seen the gospel. We've shared a meal together as a family at the Lord's table. And then uh, churches that typically do a benediction would say, God got the first word. He called us to worship, and God gets the last word. And so they'd read from the scripture, maybe the ironic blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's how you'd be dismissed. Or uh, some churches would do what's called a commission. I'm sending you out from this gathering to scatter in the power of the gospel. Again, Sunday is meant to be for Monday. As you go into the week, you've been filled here at the gathering by the gospel. So you're going out to proclaim it and you're going out to declare Jesus. Some other elements you'll see through, through different uh, ways people put this together. Sometimes you'll see a confession of a creed. Typically after uh, forgiveness, insurance of pardon, then you have, okay, we've just come before God. We've seen that our sins are forgiven. We've seen we're his people. And now they'll quote the Apostles' Creed or something. What is the faith that unifies us as a people? You get the public reading of scripture. I preached at Zoe Community Church, one of our partner churches, and they do this. I preached on Psalm 23, and so they read the whole chapter of John 10. So I preached on the Lord is my shepherd, and so they read uh, just a part of their service as Jesus is the good shepherd, so that we're saturated with the whole gospel. We see how Christ actually is going to be the total fulfillment of everything they're about to hear in this sermon. And then often people will have uh, offering or giving as a part of their service because it is an act of worship. Again, Ligon Duncan's uh, definition, worship is, is with our lips and with our lives, right? our resources, our finances. Right? So even though that's super awkward for us, pass the bucket, all that kind of stuff, uh, it, a lot of churches have the good conviction of this is an act of worship. This isn't just we need money, so give us all of your money, right? This is you're not giving us your money, you're giving the Lord your money. And so it is a way to actively die to yourself and die to your resources. And so there are some other elements there. Again, I just tried to give a very general one. This whole thick green book is a couple essays giving a biblical theology of worship, and then just the rest of it is how the reformers attempted to do this. You see Luther, Calvin, things like that. And so there's some variety, but all of them are trying to say, what is the Bible pointing us to and how can we best declare the gospel, not just in the sermon, although yes, the sermon, but with our whole gathering. So that's what they're trying to do. But you see how this service does that. You come before God, you praise him for who he is. We confess our sins. We're forgiven by Christ. We praise him for our forgiveness. We pray to him. We hear from him in his word. We respond to him in praise. We eat together at his table and then we're sent out, fed spiritually, empowered by him, by his gospel. Does, do you see how radically different that is from I like our preacher because he's relatable? 
or Tim is really skilled at, at singing songs. I love our, our preachers and I love our music. That is great. I'm not trying to shame anybody. But you see, you see the radical difference between those two. I grew up here. Uh, I grew up, you know, going to church every single Sunday. This is, is where I existed just because I never thought about this. I've never seen any of this. Ligon Duncan, uh, I love this paragraph. I think this is one sentence. Uh, so uh, I think he would get docked on this on a, on a paper. But I, I love this paragraph because it perfectly shows the difference between how we typically walk into a Sunday and the reality of what God is doing here. All this is meant to do is not just say, let's practice different so that we can be more right. It's trying to say, how can we orient our eyes towards the reality that the living God of the universe is, no matter what we think, is the one that is actually calling us in here. When you think God is far off, that is a problem in your brain, not a reflection of reality. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He sees you when you're sleeping, to use a creepy Santa Claus hymn. He's not the moralist that Santa Claus is, but he's unbelievably aware of you. He's the one calling us in. All this is trying to do is say, think about your God rightly. Come before him and praise him. He is not indifferent. He is not waiting to see if your notes are good enough. He's not even waiting to see if your performance is good enough. He already has the perfect performance on your behalf. You see that? Does that make sense? Ligon Duncan. If we think of ourselves as consumers, he's talking about Sunday worship. If we think of ourselves as consumers, we will view ourselves as an audience and the preacher and other assistants in leading the service, especially the musicians, as performers there to inspire and perhaps entertain us rather than understanding that God is the audience and we are beggars, rebels, and enemies made heirs and friends and children of God through the Father's love, the Son's obedience, death, and resurrection, and the Spirit's new birth and that we have come now by his grace to give something to God that he alone deserves and that we can only give to him through Jesus Christ in order that we might be made what he made us to be, worshipers, and enjoy what he made us to enjoy. The greatest, deepest, and best treasure in the world, the triune God himself and communion with him. Do you see the difference between those two? I love that last line. This is also that you can be who you were made to be, a worshiper, and also that you can enjoy what you were made to enjoy, God. The infinite treasure that your God is, which is, will be what you are doing for all of eternity. We see that in Revelation 9. John looks and he sees, quite literally, the gathering, the eternal gathering of all of God's people from all time, every tribe, tongue, and nation before their God, praising God, the glorious Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is a picture, which means every single Sunday you are getting a taste of eternity. If you see Sunday rightly, every single time we gather together, you're getting just a little taste of the infinite joy in store for you for eternity. So let me give you a couple of practical things, and then we'll have a couple minutes for questions. Number one, uh, prioritize the gathering. So again, it's just my way of saying, see this. See who your God is. See what he's kind of laid out for you. 
in the scriptures. See Sunday as the core of your week. There's a pastor in New York named John Stark who says, we're given the opportunity to have the best day of the year every single week. Coming before our God, being refreshed by the most glorious news in the world, enjoying the most infinite God of all joy, and then being sent out into our week. So see Sunday for Monday. See Sunday as what is meant to fill up your heart with joy. So prioritize the gathering. Prepare for the gathering. We send you our our preaching teaching schedule so that you can do this. Read the scriptures. Read about Jesus being the bruised reed that Leah is going to preach today and pray all throughout the week. Lord, I pray that you would just you just do this, even if it's a common passage. I, I know this passage, Lord. I, I don't know what else I'm going to get out of it. Uh, but change my heart. Right? And don't just expect information transfer. Expect an encounter with the living God who has called you before him so that he might speak to you. Prepare for the gathering. Pray for the gathering. Pray for the preacher. Pray for Lee. Pray for me. Whoever, again, we sent you the schedule so that you can be doing that. So that what happens on Sunday morning in the preaching of the word isn't just up to our skill, but rather your prayers, that we would be dependent every single Sunday on the spirit moving in our midst. Pray for yourselves, again, that God would transform your heart. Pray for unbelievers. I would imagine every single Sunday there's people in here that don't know the Lord. So pray that through the preached word, the spirit of God would be active amongst us and we would see supernatural life change often. We would have a witness often of just God changing hearts. They were this way, God intervened, and they're this way. Pray that God would just move in our midst. You could do that every single week, focused on Sunday. Prepare for the, or participate in the gathering. Uh, Don't just view yourself as the audience, as a passive recipient, that I'm just here to be fed by the professionals on the stage, rather. Sing. And every now and then, think about what you're singing. Pray what you're singing. Preach to yourself what you're singing. Every now and then, stop singing and listen to your brothers and sisters praising your living God. There's nothing, I mean, mean, just try that today. Not all at the same time, because it would be like, whoa, what just happened? Um, just, Just listen and see if that doesn't just warm your heart. Maybe you're having a rough, doubting week, and then to hear 200 other brothers and sisters screaming out how worthy God is and how near and comforting. God is just see if that would not encourage you and then sing so that others might hear you. We're not just here for the vertical. The vertical is for the horizontal. Paul is very, very concerned uh, with the Corinthian church edifying one another, building one another up, and that's through us participating together in our singing as we take communion together, as we actively listen, as we respond, though you, you guys might be too timid for some amens, but you're note-taking. That's, that's, you know, your way of responding. That's your amens, right? Uh, and then lastly, I ran out of words that started with P, be discipled by the gathering. <laughs> um, so we might think of discipleship as something that happens not on Sunday. Uh, for all of church history, so for the past 2,000 years, the primary way the church has made disciples is, is the Lord's Day's gathering. God calling his people, us praising his glorious name, him blessing us through his word, us sharing a meal together and leaving. There is other ways of being discipled, but don't make the main way that God has discipled his people throughout church history an afterthought. Okay, so expect that. Expect that the word will change and mold your heart. And again, as I said a second ago, 
expect that just your worship of God will be a good example to others. Have you ever noticed how if you just start hanging out with encouraging people, they don't sit down and they say, here's how you be encouraging. Let me give you a lecture. They're just encouraging and you start hanging out with them. You will start to realize I'm actually being more encouraging. There's just an inevitability of influence that will come from you. And similarly, as we're all together, the Lord is using your example in ways that you don't see and you might never see. But he is using it for the building up of the body. So see Sunday for your own discipleship and the discipleship of others. Never think you just rock up in here and nobody notices and you're going to sing a few songs and hear a sermon and leave. See what we're doing on Sunday in its biblical plan and as a preview for what we will all do together, us, Augustine, Moses, we're all going to be, every tribe, tongue, and nation, praising him for all of eternity. So let me pray for us. I've, I've got uh, those resources there. They're these three resources. There's not enough time for me to hold them up, uh, but you're not going to get the big thick one, but those other two are more manageable. Uh, let me pray for us and then got time for uh, like a few questions. Father, we love you. Uh, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that uh, it's not reality that we show up and we yell at you and we get an indifferent God to pay attention to us. That's what we see with Baal as Elijah mocks them, as they have a God who's not a real God that may be going to the bathroom is why he's not paying attention to them, but rather we have a God who calls us when we're lost and we're blind and we're far away. So I pray that when we do gather before you, we see just your glory, that we bless you and see that you, as we bless you, you do nothing but bless us and we can enjoy you and we can be who we're meant to be, joy-filled worshipers. So we thank you for your son, we pray in his name. Amen.